Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the passages for the 20th Sunday after Pentecost. If you would like to download the lectionary that they are using for these discussions, you can find that down there in the show notes. And if you've been helped by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would give us a rating and a review on iTunes. That will really help us get this content in front of more listeners. With that, we really hope that you enjoy listening in on this discussion over these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here with Brian Motes, and we're here remotely with Alistair Roberts, who is joining us from Durham, England. Uh, today we're talking about the lectionary readings for the 20th Sunday after Pentecost in 2018, that is October 7th, and the readings for this coming Sunday are Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, the creation of Eve, Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 13, with an optional reading that goes to the end of the chapter, verses 14 through 18, and then a portion of Mark 10, verses 2 through 16, where Jesus is in a debate uh, with the Pharisees about, uh, about divorce and where he cites the uh, Genesis passage that we'll be looking at. Uh, we'll start with Genesis and uh, then make our way to the Gospel and then to Hebrews. We can diverge from that order if we find good reason to do so. Uh, just to set up some context, uh, or Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. One of the, one of the contexts for looking at um, uh, Genesis 2 is the parallels that we find between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. James Jordan has pointed this out in various places. The, uh, seven, the six, 6 plus 1 ordering of Genesis 1 to 2, 3 is really obvious. You have the days of creation and then the Sabbath day at the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, and the ordering of chapter 2 into chapter 3 is not so obvious, but it still breaks up into a seven-section sequence. So you have the macrocosmic formation of the world in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, and then Genesis 2, 4 and following focus in on particularly the creation of man and the placement of Adam in the garden and so on, and leading to the fall. And that also is that that microcosmic focus on the creation of man is also laid out as a sevenfold, uh, in a sevenfold sequence. Like many other uh, passages of Scripture, we have this creation motif. And in Genesis 1 and 2, I think the part of the theology behind it is this uh, macro-micro connection that I've already mentioned. Uh, and in that sequence, the passage that we'll be looking at, verses 18 through 25 of Genesis 2, occurs in the sixth, the sixth slot that makes sense because this is the formation of Eve. Adam has been formed from the dust, placed in the garden. Uh, the garden has been described as Adam has been given a task in the garden. And now Adam is uh, uh, called to name the animals and then uh, Eve is going to be formed from a rib that's taken from his side. So this is the fifth and sixth days, I guess you could say, uh, that, are, uh, being, uh, that are being covered here in this portion of Genesis 2. And then you move into the beginning of Genesis 3, and we're at the Sabbath day, uh, the day when the Lord appears in uh, Eden and uh, passes judgment on Adam, uh, the day of testing, uh, the day of potential enthronement for Adam, but 
in, in actual fact, he's, he's not enthroned because he, he doesn't pass the test. Now, one other contextual thing, and then uh, get your, some initial thoughts from you, Alistair. Um, the, one of the uh, common observations about this passage is the, the uh, striking negation that we have in 2.18 after a series of statements in Genesis 1 about the goodness of creation. God uh, sees thus and such and pronounces it good. And evening and morning were uh, day one, day three, day four, and so on. Uh, good, 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 good. And then suddenly, 2.18, we have this uh, something that's not good. Given the rhythm of Genesis 1, that stands out and it's highlighted as a, an imperfection, an immaturity, perhaps, in the creation that needs to be corrected. Understanding the sense in which it's not good for the man to be alone, I think it's important to see this against the backdrop of the wider creation and the purpose for which the Adam or the man is created is not merely for the sake of being a despot within the creation to be able to use it purely for his own pleasure and his own ends, but to be someone who glorifies the creation, who tills the earth and serves the earth. And when we read about the creation of the man at the earlier part of this chapter, his creation is very much framed as something for the sake of the creation, not just for his own sake. And so the sense in which it's not good for the man to be alone is not merely that the man is lonely and needs companionship, but there's something about God's purpose within the broader creation of this human being and the place of humanity within the creation that requires the two-ness of male and female to fulfill it, that that being alone is to be read against the backdrop of the greater creative purpose, not just against Adam's psychological state and his need for someone to be with. Right, uh, and one of the, one of the uh, one direction that you could go with that is the uh, the observation. Um, obviously, uh, Genesis Genesis one talks about the creation of man in the image of God, male and female. He created man. And then be fruitful and multiply. So part of the part of the uh, reality of sexual difference is for the sake of this dominion mandate, as you said, but not all of it. And Genesis two is focusing particularly on the placement of Adam in the in the uh, in the garden, which is uh, uh, the the original sanctuary, the original place of communion with God, the original place of uh, kind of sacramental trees, the original place of worship. Uh, and you can make that case, uh, as many have, by looking at parallels between the garden and other sanctuaries in the Bible. But that, that sets some, that some, set some uh, limits or context on what uh, Adam is looking for. He's, he's, as you say, not just looking for a companion. He's not just looking for a companion in dominion or filling the earth, but in the context of the garden, it's uh, liturgical, liturgical uh, union or liturgical dialogue that's, uh, that's in view. And the other relationship to consider here is the way that Adam is growing in a relationship with God, that God does not merely make this decision for him, but there is a process of Adam entering into his father's task of naming things. So God named things on the first three days of creation, but here we have Adam naming things that were created on the fifth and sixth days. There is a, an entrance into his father's task within the ruling and the ordering of the creation. So the initial task given to Adam is very much related to the tilling of 
the soil, the serving of the garden. But here we have something that goes further, which is a naming of things, uh, an ordering of things according to meaning and purpose, giving things orientation and direction within the world. And it helps us to understand a bigger aspect of his calling within creation. And then as the woman is created, she is created in the process of this 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 task of deliberation and reflection upon the creation as Adam learns about himself, learns how the creation relates to himself and learns what it would mean for him to have a true companion in his task. Yeah, a very good point that uh, uh, Adam is uh, already, uh, you already see signs of Adam's elevation into, as you, as you, as you described it, elevation into the, te- the uh, work of God in the world. As the image of God, he's doing the work of God and naming and ordering the world. John Paul II, in his very interesting set of meditations on marriage and the body, the theology of the body, was a set of lengthy and very repetitive set of meditations that he delivered over the course of a couple of years at the Vatican. And one of the things he points out, the initial part of those meditations are reflections on the early chapters of Genesis. A great deal of it has to do with the biblical exegesis and very interesting meditations on these chapters. And one of the points that he makes is the kind of oddness of the sequence here that God, uh, in Genesis 2, God, is said, God creates Adam alone, a solitary man, and then forms Eve from him, or solitary human maybe, and then forms Eve from him so that he's called man after the, after the appearance of Eve. But the fact that, he's, that they have this kind of solitary moment uh, is uh, uh, something that John Paul develops at, at some length. That there's a, there's a, and I think that reformed reformed theologians would generally think about that as in terms of vocation. Adam is given a vocation to guard the garden and to keep the garden, to serve the garden, and then Eve is created alongside that. But um, part of uh, John Paul's point is that Adam is created in solitary communion with God, and there's a kind of individuality established. And then Eve is brought into that, into the world from that. So there's a, uh, he uses that as a way of securing uh, our individual standing before God, individual communion with God. And I know that you, uh, Alistair, you've uh, spent a lot of time, you did in your course that you did for us uh, in March, uh, spent a lot of time talking about how the, uh, the male-female duality that's here in Genesis 2, also in Genesis 1, how that fits into and uh, is uh, analogous to the various other dualities that exist within creation. So the the and I, I think the the thrust of it was that this um, male female duality is not it's embedded in the way that the world is is put together. Uh, it's embedded in a world that's made up of a duality of heaven and earth, a duality of uh, water and uh, land, and so on. Yes, and we can already see that within the creation of the man, he's created. Um, the Adam from the Adamah, that there is a relationship there that the earth is his mother and heaven is, um, God has a father-like relationship from heaven. And when the woman is created, she has a very close relationship with the earth, that every single person who comes into the world after Adam comes from the mother's womb. And the mother's womb is associated very closely with the earth. It's where we receive our flesh, it's where we receive our matter. And so you have the parallels within the curses, you have the parallels within statements like, um, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return there, 
or knit together in the lowest parts of the earth. These sorts of statements that create that particular connection or the establishment of sun and moon in the heavens to rule over the heavens on the fourth day and then the creation of man and woman to rule over the earth and the sea on the sixth day. Those sorts of parallels are significant along with the forming and filling pattern that we see within Genesis 1 and the way that that is particularly related to male and female in um, in a way that the man particularly leads in the task of forming, naming, taming, ordering, structuring, dividing, these sorts of things, which we've already seen in his naming of the animals, these sorts of tasks. Whereas the things that happen on the fourth to the sixth days, the glorifying, filling, perfecting, um, giving life, communion, these sorts of things, again, there's a different thing taking place there. And it's particularly related to the work of the woman. And elsewhere within redemptive history, we see a connection here between the work of forming and the work of Christ in particular, and the work of filling, glorifying, perfecting, regenerating, etc., and the work of the Spirit. Within this particular section, I think one thing that is striking is the sort of asymmetry that exists between um, Adam and Eve in their connection to each other. The woman is taken from the side of the man and it's we're told that the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. There's a, a sort of directionality there. There's also the fact that the man has part of himself taken outside of himself and made into another. The woman does not have that. And so the man has a different relationship to her than she has to him. And yet both are bonded to and oriented towards each other in some way the woman's relationship to the man is um, not so much as a part of him that's taken out a part of herself that's taken outside but rather as one to whom she has desire one to whom she's ordered in a way that is an overflowing of something rather than a, a trying to recover a, an original union that was broken in a more glorious union and, and that point could be at the at the root um, of uh, what Paul talks about in uh, Ephesians 5, where he, he applies, obviously, this uh, passage and talk, says it's talking about Christ and the church. He sees already a, a Christological and ecclesial dimension to Genesis 2. But a part of what he says is that uh, a man should uh, cherish and love his wife as his own flesh. No man hates his own flesh. And uh, part of the part of the message of Genesis 2 is, is as you said, that there's a, the, the woman is an other, She's an other that's made, that literally has been made from his own flesh. So there's a, it's not just the fact that they are to be united and be one flesh. They're supposed to cleave and be one flesh. But they're, uh, they're uh, in a sense, one flesh by their origin because she's taken from him. I'm also, I also think that the, bringing the other, uh, some other dimensions to this that the New Testament brings out, um, uh, Paul in a couple of places talks about the, the sequence of events in Genesis 2 as having significant significance for the ordering of different uh, uh, communities. So the, the man is created first and then the woman. And that's a pattern for ordering within the church. Uh, but then he also uh, qualifies that or uh, he, that gets, uh, that gets um, embedded within a situation of mutual dependence uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 11, particularly where he, uh, Paul makes the, Paul makes the point that the uh, the woman comes from the man, uh, but then 
ever since then, every man has come from a woman. So there's this mutuality to the dependence. There is a, so that combination of both a sort of hierarchy, it's not really a hierarchy so much as precedence in time, uh, and that's something that, that uh, Paul sees as having significance. But at the same time, there's this mutuality. Those two things are operating together. And uh, the asymmetry there should not be, as you say, should not be understood simply as a flat hierarchy, but rather as a different positioning within the body of humanity. And these relationships are constitutive of us. We're not just detached individuals, but both man and woman are implicated in the other in some ways. Mm. The woman was taken from the man, and the woman is part of the man that is taken from him and fashioned into another. And she's built rather than um, formed or made in the same way as the man is, which again suggests architectural imagery. It suggests maybe some connections that we see elsewhere in relationship to the tabernacle or the temple. And I think that also connects with part of what's going on here, that the woman is the one who brings communion. And the site of human communion, whether that's just the body of the woman or whether it's the um, union of the marriage and a family or whether it's a city or whether it's... um, something else along those lines. It's often seen as feminine. We have a number of cities within scripture that are spoken of as feminine because of that communion at the heart of them is something that the woman brings. Whereas if it were just another man who weren't formed from the side of the man, we would have companionship and we would have um, fellowship, but we wouldn't have that true communion that you see that the woman brings in particular and i think that's part of the reason for the directionality that it's the man who leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife Mm -hmm. that the wife is the one who brings the communion and the the inner life of a society and of a family particularly yeah i think that the uh, one of the important uh, parts of what you said is that uh, the the feminine characterization of of cities is not just ancient idiom or uh, uh, symbolism or a kind of metaphor, but there's some kind of inherent created connection between femininity and civic order. Uh, this is a point that uh, you made in your course uh, back in uh, back in March. It's a, it's a point that uh, our friend Rich Bledsoe has made in a lot of different writings. Uh, the the connection between renewal of cities that is renewal of civilization and the renewal of marriage and uh, there's a there's a uh, a deep connection between the two that's uh, based on the uh, original the original creation pattern it's not this is not just accidental or a kind of a kind of uh, uh, superficial idiom i should also call attention to a couple of things that are kind of standard uh riffs on genesis 2 um, uh, around here uh, going back to uh uh, usually to Jim Jordan, the source of uh, so, source of everything uh, I know about uh, the Bible. Uh, Jim has pointed out, for example, the the uh, kind of death and resurrection pattern that's in in Genesis two. Adam is put into a deep sleep. He's not just put into he's not just um, taking a nap. He's put into a deep sleep, which is a kind of near death experience. The word is used a few times only in the in the uh, Old Testament. Uh, Abram goes through a similar experience when God forms a covenant with him. There's parallels between Abram's experience in covenant making and the uh, 
experience of Adam here. So he goes into a deep sleep, a near-death experience, and then coming out of that, there's a glorification. Uh, the woman is the glory of the man. Uh, death uh, leading to glorification is, this is, and importantly, this is a pattern that's built into the creation prior to the fall. This is not something that follows Adam's sin, but this is the pattern of life and glorification that exists prior to that. Um, it exists because of the way that God created the world. Um, a seed has to go into the ground and die in order to bear much fruit. That's not something that comes into existence following the fall. And uh, Jim has connected that with the uh, threat of death with the tree of knowledge. That it, Had Adam taken the tree of knowledge rightly, legitimately, with God's permission, it would have still been a kind of death and glorification that would have been part of it. He would have at least died to an earlier form and state of maturity and risen to a more glorious state. Uh, the other the other point that Jim often has made is the uh, the pun in the little poem that we have in uh, two twenty three. Uh, I think it, I think it's significant that the first words we hear from the mouth of a human being are a little snatch of poetry, which includes a pun. Uh, the pun is the original form of wit. The pun is the original form of uh, human uh, knowledge. These are the very first words we have in the Bible from a human being. Punning has a venerable tradition behind it. Um, but the pun is on... Uh, Adam didn't even have to wait to be a dad to develop that sort, <laughs> exactly, of, that exactly sort right. of humor. Uh, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's husband humor, not just dad humor. Exactly. Uh, the, there's a number of things going on here. Bone of bone, flesh of flesh is kin language in the Bible, typically. Uh, it's a recognition of, uh, of kinship. It's not, a, it's not marital language in the first instance. Uh, but then the pun is in the second half of the little poem in 2.23 where uh, Adam names the woman, Isha, because she was taken out of Ish, uh, man. Uh, that's the first time that Adam is described, and he describes himself as the man. Maybe in the beginning of the verse, uh, the man said, that may be Ish, I'd have to look at the Hebrew. But this is the first time that he's, uh, that he's spoken of as Ish. Prior to that, he's Adam from the Adama. Now he's Ish, and uh, Jim has made a connection between that, that word, and again, you want to add a layer of punning to it, uh, ish is, at least uh, in sound, is connected with the word for fire, ish, and perhaps etymologically. Uh, what we have here is Adam uh, from, uh, he's, a, he's a man who's made from dust and dirt, and he's glorified and uh, lit on fire by the presence of the woman. So it's the isha that turns him into a man of fire. And again, I, it's, uh, we don't want to don't want to uh, dismiss that as mere imagery or poetry, uh, as if there is such a thing as mere poetry. But the, the Bible makes it clear, or I think our experience makes it clear, that there's a reality to this, that it's the presence of a woman that lights a man on fire. Uh, that's, that's the part of the uh, theme of the Song of Songs. Uh, the man is uh, impassioned. He's uh, inflamed by the flame of Yah, uh, in the presence of his bride. And that's what's happening to Adam here. And then uh, we can connect that with the uh, sacrificial themes too if we wanted to extend that. Um, both the separation of Adam and his rib, uh, the punning on the language of fire, uh, the, even the term Isha uh, is a term that uh, is connected with, again, at least in sound, is connected with one of the words that's used in Leviticus for uh, for sacrifices. So all that is um, all that is bundled together here. Two points about the final two verses of this chapter that I would like 
hear some of your thoughts on. First of all, in verse 24, you see the man leaving his father and mother and being joined to his wife. And we tend to read that as a marital reference, but it's also a generational thing that's being referred to, a pattern of the movement of the generations. And the relationship between man and woman and the movement of the generations is an important theme in Leviticus and elsewhere. I know you've written on the way that incest can break that proper pattern mm-hmm. that occurs and how um, this movement of the generations through marriage and leaving father and mother and forming a new flesh is is significant. The other thing is these verses being, if we're taking this pattern within this chapter, as Jim and others have pointed out, to be a recapitulation of the creation pattern, what we have here is the seventh day, the Sabbath, and a connection with the rest that God enters into, that entrance into the union of husband and wife, there is something sabbatical about that, mm-hmm. um, something Sabbath-like in the union. And I think that also comes out in places like Song of Songs. There's something within that union that brings about a relationship with the creation that allows for rest in the midst of labors. Right. Um, just on uh, the comment, uh, another comment on your first point, um, the leaving, uh, you know, the, he cleaves to his wife, but that presumes he's leaving behind uh, the, his family of origin. There's, uh, maybe, maybe I just see sacrifice everywhere. But it does seem like there's a sacrificial pattern going in there. There's a kind of, there's a cutting off of a previous generation. There's a, there's a uh, departure from the place of the womb. There's a departure from the family of origin in order to create this new entity, which is the new family, and that, that reproduces. So it's through that, that kind of cutting off and, and reunion, um, that separation and union that's a sacrificial pattern that, uh, that the generations are fruitful. Uh, we move on to, Gen- uh, to Mark 10. We could go on and on with uh, Genesis 2, but uh, uh, Mark 10 is, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, is a, uh, Mark's account of Jesus' debate with the Pharisees concerning divorce. This is, uh, this is the passage, or uh, one of the synoptic versions of this is the passage that uh, John Paul uses as the, stepping, uh, the jumping off point, the, the springboard for his meditations on the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, and his point is that uh, he's, uh, Jesus is dealing with a question about the law and divorce, but Jesus' response to that is not merely to get into a debate about the law, although he does that, but his, his response is also to go behind the law, back to the, back to the beginning, and the beginning becomes a standard by which the law is illumined and uh, clarified. So um, it's this passage that leads John Paul to go back and start a series of meditations on Genesis because it's going to be that Genesis pattern that's going to be the standard by which um, marriage in general is going to be judged and even the, the, the uh, particular terms of the law. This is in the latter part of Jesus' ministry when he's... Uh, in regular conflict with the Pharisees, he's not yet at the temple, but he's. Uh, uh, this is a one of the one of the conflicts he has with the Pharisees. They're trying to test him and trap him, uh, and uh, they're trying to find a way to, to uh, provide, you know, trying to build up a case that will um, lead to his uh, that they can bring before the Sanhedrin. Uh, and Jesus, as usual, eludes their eludes their trap, 
partly by giving them a response concerning the law, partly, as I said, by referring back beyond the law to go back to the original form of marriage in Genesis 2. Um, the, the passage he's referring to is in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, which is the one passage in the law that uh, deals explicitly with divorce. And uh, it seems that the Pharisees are offering a, uh, and, and it seems uh, the differences among Pharisees of the first century about the legitimacy of divorce and the conditions of the divorce. Of divorce. The Pharisees seem to be uh, assuming a kind of loose understanding of that law that uh, gives permission to a man to put away his wife for whatever reason. And Jesus comments on that by uh, saying that the commandment is given because of the hardness of Israel's heart. Uh, hardness of heart is, of course, a, a pharaoh. Uh, it's, the, it's the disease of pharaoh, and it's a disease that Israel caught while in Egypt and while they were going through the wilderness. And it's, it's interesting that, the, that Jesus describes this particular law and implicitly other laws as given to a people uh, uh, because of the hardness of their heart. The law is not given to a sinless or perfect people. It's written for uh, a people that's already, uh, that's living in a post-Adamic world, living outside of Eden. And it's given to a people that is already proven, shown to be uh, suffering from this uh, feral disease of hardness of heart. The law is, is kind of accommodated to that condition. And here I think it's probably important to see that I don't believe that Jesus is just weighing in on a particular debate upon the minutiae of the law. He's not just taking one side within this debate among the Pharisees. Rather, he's pushing beyond either of their positions, which would focus upon what was permitted within the law to give a fundamental orientation to marriage that we find within the original creation. And on that front, it's interesting also that Christ brings together statements from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, which in our day and age, a lot of people see those as two distinct creation accounts to be kept fairly separate. But as we've already seen, these two accounts are structured in a way that is paralleled with each other. But beyond that, they also, their teaching is also brought into, the, into direct correspondence with each other here and elsewhere. And I think that that's important to to recognize that these aren't distinct or separate creation accounts that stand alone. Rather, these belong together as a unified account or witness to um, God's creation. Yeah, and uh, in the light of that, uh, the, this passage uh, addresses a couple of hot-button issues of our time. Um, you frequently hear the claim that uh, Jesus doesn't address issues surrounding uh, same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage, uh, transgenderism, and all the set of uh, uh, sexual issues that confront us today. Um, in in a sense, he doesn't have to. The rest of the Bible does. But Jesus does, in fact, address the question of uh, male-female difference uh, and takes it for granted that what Genesis 1 tells us is that there are, there are two... God created two sexes, God created male and female, uh, and that he created them to be joined together in one flesh in marriage. You can make a case for that from the passages Jesus cites and other places in the Bible, but uh, and, uh, this would be one place to go to uh, rebut the idea that Jesus never addresses this kind of question. The other thing that this brings up uh, that's more, it's not a, uh, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a done deal in our cultural 
culture, culture generally, but it's a hot-button issue within the Roman Catholic Church at the moment, which is the question of divorce and uh, the le legitimacy of divorce, the conditions under which divorce is permitted, uh, and whether a divorced person can ever remarry and, and uh, whether a divorced person can be in good fellowship with the church. Uh, and Mark's, in Mark's account, uh, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. If she herself divorces her husband and married, marries another, she is committing adultery. In Mark's account, you don't have the qualifying phrase that you have in uh, Matthew, uh, which I think makes an exception for uh, adultery uh, or unfaithfulness, except in the case of porneia. The, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery, except for porneia, uh, and marries another commits adultery against her. Um, I don't, I don't believe that Jesus is rejecting all divorce. I think he's dealing with, uh, he's addressing, insofar as he's addressing divorce, he's addressing the pharisaical distortions of Deuteronomy 24 and uh, their tendency to ignore Genesis 2. Uh, but he's not laying out an unqualified no divorce policy, I don't believe, um, which has been the, the view of the Catholic Church and is taken as a, as a uh, command of Jesus that there should be no divorce. Admittedly, I see this from the outside, but it looks to me like this leads to all kind of subterfuge in the Catholic Church, where uh, instead of instead of divorces being permitted under certain limited circumstances, you have uh, annulments that are uh, decided by the church and uh, treat the marriage as if it never happened, which is a, a farce in many cases. Uh, it also leads to some, I think, some uh, uh, some pastoral problems then. I think that uh, uh, the uh, Pope Francis's emphasis on mercy is distorted in various ways that he he and others in the Catholic Church use that category to um, to chip away at the requirements of Scripture. But in this case, I, I think that he's got. I, I think he and his uh, and his allies have a point. Um, Jesus seems to leave an opening for uh, a divorce that I think permits remarriage, uh, and uh, that is a a merciful uh, avenue for women who are caught, men and women who are caught in uh, marriages that are that have already been destroyed by unfaithfulness. The way Jesus frames this, I think, is significant. That he doesn't he doesn't dismiss the legitimacy of the law of Moses. Um, he doesn't say that it was inappropriate for Moses to allow this and um, permit this certificate of divorce. This wasn't a bad law. Um, rather, it was a law that was accommodated to uh, hard-hearted people. And I think in our day and age, it's important to recognize the presence and the legitimacy under certain circumstances of accommodations to the hard-heartedness of a people, that even in their hard-heartedness, God would not have um, us to be alienated from his grace. And I think that's often a problem within the Roman Catholic position, that people are cut off um, mm -hmm. because a marriage has broken down. And so there's, as you say, there's subterfuge and annulments and these other things that seek to get around the problem in a way that undermine the fundamental order. But what Christ does is he draws attention that we don't get our bearings from a law that is accommodated to a hard-hearted people that seeks to arrange their social life in a way that is as ordered as it can be under the circumstances of their sin. Rather, he draws our attention beyond that to actually not a divine command at all, but to the divine creation, 
which provides the fundamental paradigm. And then that undermines any sense of divorce being straightforwardly permitted. Um, any divorce, even if it's um, made a even if there are allowances for made for divorce, it is a breaking of that fundamental order. And I think that's one of the points that Christ is bringing out from this, that it gets lost easily within the debates about the details of the law within the Pharisaic debate. And so when a number of people speak into this discussion, I think they miss what Christ is doing in placing a more absolute standard against which we can see the limitations of the Mosaic allowance. Mm -hmm. That the Mosaic allowance wasn't wrong, but it's an allowance that is fundamentally a break of the original created intent. And that created intent never loses its normative character and ceases to be something that gives us the terms by which to judge what is good and what is not. We should uh, move on to the uh, uh, epistle reading in Hebrews 2 and, and at least get some brief comments in before we, uh, before we run out of time. Not that we have time <laughs> limits. We have unlimited time to continue talking. Um, but I don't think our listeners have unlimited patience, so we, should, uh, um, we shouldn't test the patience. Uh, you, you, uh, you noted before we, before we began uh, recording uh, that this uh, passage links up with the others by reference to the incarnation and Jesus partaking of uh, the same flesh and blood with uh, the children that he's come to uh, deliver, uh, the, the children who've been given to him. That's in uh, uh, Hebrews 2.14, which is uh, just outside of the passage. Uh, and there's a, the language is being used there in, it's similar to the language used in Genesis 2, and I think would have, and has the same kind of connotation. I, I mentioned earlier that Genesis 2, the the language is more kin recognition than it is uh, a, a statement of uh, of uh, marital union. It's a language that that uh, is used when David becomes king. You are our flesh. You are our flesh and bone with us. Um, and that's what uh, I think. That's what um, uh, Hebrews two is referring to. That Jesus becomes kin with us. But there could you could also see perhaps a, a deeper allusion to Genesis two and uh, Jesus comes as the bridegroom in order to deliver the bride uh, and in order to deliver the bride he's um, he unites himself with the bride and takes on the same uh, not on the same only the same flesh and blood but uh, assumes the suffering and uh, learns obedience by what he suffers he's perfected through uh, the things that he experiences and so on uh, all the things that Hebrews says here now you could see that in kind of a marital context I think that is also something that plays out against the background of the angelic themes in interesting ways. I was reading um, The Theology of Jonathan Edwards by uh, Gerald McDermott and um, Michael McClement recently, and they talk about Edwards's understanding of the angels and the way in which he describes it as like a great house with noble, a, a royal house with nobles and others that are within it. And the status of the church is one of humble birth, but raised up to the heights by virtue of a marital relationship with the, the king. And that, I think, is capturing some of the things that Hebrews is talking about here. Mm. That 
relationship that we have with the angels is we're lower than them than them by nature but yet we're raised up above them in Christ by virtue of um, our union with him our, as bride and bridegroom. Yeah, and I'd, I'd, I think the, the angels are, uh, from the beginning of Hebrews, are an important part of uh, the argument. Uh, I take all that as being part of the larger argument of Hebrews that has to do with the contrast between uh, the limitations of the Old Covenant and the glories of the New Covenant. The Old Covenant had... Uh, was glorious. The Old Covenant had a priesthood, it had a sacrifice, uh, it had a sanctuary. Uh, but the New Covenant has all those things, and the, what the New Covenant has surpasses what the Old Covenant provided. And I think that same contrast is at work in the opening chapters with this talk about um, the angels. It, it's, it's fairly common, I think, for commentators to say that uh, Hebrews is referring to worship of angels or uh, some kind of... Um, Jewish or Greco-Roman angel uh, devotion. I think rather what's what's in view is the kind of thing that uh, Paul says in Galatians, uh, that uh, Stephen says in his sermon before his martyrdom about the law being delivered through angels. Uh, the reason why angels are honored uh, within Judaism, at least in its uh, at the origin, is because they're the mediators of the law. That's a signal of a larger pattern in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is an angelic covenant. The mediators who and messengers who come from Yahweh are angels. Um, I think the theophanies of the angel of Yahweh are theophanies of the of the Son, pre-incarnate theophanies of the Son. And so the Son appears in angelic form in the Old Covenant, but now he's come in the flesh. And I think that's the contrast that's at work. So when it's, it's talking about the, the um, difference between the world, uh, the world that was, which is, uh, uh, has angels as its mediators, but that's not true of the uh, world to come. The world to come is under the dominion of a man, Jesus, uh, and we, uh, united to Jesus, are uh, for a little while lower than the angels, but now, as you said, elevated above the angels. Just one last comment on that. Uh, I've been citing Jim Jordan throughout uh, the podcast, and as we always do. Even when we don't cite him, he's lurking in our consciousness. But Jim liked to talk about the angels as kind of the drill sergeants of humanity. They're there to train humanity, to lead humanity to maturity, to be the, um, to be the, uh, the uh, pedagogue, uh, to, to lead them to Christ uh, and to maturity in Christ. But uh, their goal is to raise humanity up above them. The goal is not to keep humanity in subordination to them. Uh, just as a, the drill sergeant's goal is to train the officer so that eventually the officer will have a higher rank than he has. And on the subject of the angel's perspective in all of this, um, one of the interesting features of the discussion of Edwards and of the angels is his suggestion that looking at the Christ's incarnation and his ascension from the perspective of the angels, it changes the angelic order. And he argues that the angels are confirmed in righteousness at that point. Um, so the angels could fall beforehand, but then at Christ's ascension, they are confirmed in righteousness through that, um, the events of his incarnation, and then also his defeat over the angels in, um, as described in Revelation 12, the, the fallen angels, which I thought was an, an interesting suggestion. I'd be curious to hear your perspective on that. And that's part of the reason he suggests that the angels rejoice 
um, so greatly at the birth of Christ and also um, his ascension. Yeah, so, so the, the angels are rejoicing because their, their, uh, their task is complete. I'm sorry, I lost... Uh... Just as Adam was before the fall, Adam was um, created righteous but capable of sin. He was not yet mature. And that suggestion that I mean, in the new heaven and in the new earth will be confirmed in righteousness. And Edwards's suggestion is that the angels were confirmed in righteousness after the ascension of Christ. Mm. And so part of the significance of Christ's ascension is it's the overcoming of the rebellion of the angels, final overcoming of the rebellion of the angels, uh, filling of the space of the morning star Lucifer, and it's uh, an establishment of the angelic order, the order of the house, not just of humanity, but of the angelic order within the house as well. So as Christ is set over the house, there is something set right that was set wrong, not just with the sin of Adam, but also with the rebellion of Lucifer. I don't think I have any deep comments. That, that makes a lot of sense to me, actually. The, the alternative would be that uh, you have creatures, angels, who are established in their position and role before God somehow apart from the work of Christ, which that, that doesn't seem like it would be right. <laughs> Jesus is the one who reconciles all things. He's the one in whom all things cohere, and that would include spiritual beings, it would seem, too. I've never, I've never uh, that's not a thought I've had, but uh, it, it makes intuitive sense to me that uh, it would, Jesus would have to be the one to do that. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm